3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands and the waters of the Wurundjeri and the Bugarong people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners and custodians of the land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be listening to this broadcast. We recognise the continued resilience of the First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. It is Wednesday, September 13. Good morning, Grace. Good morning, Sonera. How are we? Good morning. How are you? everyone. Uh, all good. Yeah, not bad. It's uh, The sun is coming more lighter in the morning. I'm seeing it's a bit more lighter at night time as well, so that daylight savings is slowly coming towards us and the weather is just turning a little bit nice and mm. uh, warmer. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, the sun's much out much earlier this time and um did you see the hot air balloons outside yes i did no, i did i, I did woke not. up this morning and i was just like whoa that's i haven't seen one in a while and i love it i was just like i want to get on that yeah i know it was a bit like wow i hope it doesn't have any emergency landings that have that has happened in the past so um do you if, know do you know why is oh it? i think it's through with wind in in all seriousness i think it's through oh with no wind. no sorry i mean like do you oh. know why the hot air balloons are up there uh, they do, um, I, I do know that in Melbourne there's a lot of uh, hot air balloon tours uh, and they do tours around Melbourne. So a lot of people do, it's a famous thing where a lot of people go in the morning and uh, look at the nice sunrise and look at the view of the city, go across the bay, go to the Yarra Ranges, get a get a nice bottle of wine and a bit of cheese there scenario, you know, just, just a nice start to your morning. <laughs> I haven't done that before, but... You're, I'm like sold on it right now. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but Sonera, we'll start with you with headlines. There'll be some big news coming out of last night, I'm guessing. Uh, yes. Just. Um, so for today's headlines. So. Oh, sorry. For today's headlines. Um, starting off, the Andrews government has announced that Victorians studying to become public high school teachers will have their degrees and living costs subsidised by the state government to address teacher shortages at secondary schools. The Vict- uh, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews announced on Tuesday that students will get $18,000 for a four-year gra- undergraduate program or $9,000 for a two-year postgraduate study if they commit to teaching in state secondary schools for at least two years. The scheme will be open to students who enroll in teaching degrees next year and in 2025, and it's estimated that about 4,000 graduates will benefit from it. However, the Australian Education Union are requesting that the Premier give financial support to the teachers uh, that are currently in the field or trying to enter the field, stating that there are as many as 2,600 jobs yet to be filled. Now in South Australia, the collapse of the home builder Quattro has 
cast doubt over the future of 200 homes and the government's plans for social housing pipeline. The South Australia-based developer was placed into liquidation on Tuesday due to supply chain and labour shortages, causing blowouts to fixed price and construction contracts. The liquidation of Quattro comes after the collapse of many other home builders around the country this year, such as fellow South Australian builder Felmary Homes, Sydney-based developer Topless and Victorian builder Porter Davis. Quattro's managing director Bradley Jensen apologised for the closure's impact on long-term employees, clients and contractors and said that the business will focus on completing the under-construction homes. And now in the suburbs, the Greater Dandenong Council has extended its contract with controversial recycling contractor Polytrade Operations. The recycling contractor has come under fire for allegedly underpaying refugees on visas. Polytrade was recently prosecuted in the federal court by the Fair Work Ombudsman for allegedly underpaying five refugees on visas of nearly $200,000 over 20 months at Dandenong and Hallam. The company itself was fined over $130,000 and the owners, husband and wife Mang Sang Chen and Pui, Pui Shan Ho were fined over 27000 and nearly $9,000 respectively. The council stands by its 10-year contract with Polytrade and the contract which is to end in September 2023 will be extended to March 2024. And that's all for the headlines for today. Thanks very much, Shanera. Uh, we've got a big show coming up. We're going to be uh, speaking to Swan de Sawat. Uh, so Annie McLaughlin spoke to her on 3CR Celebrity Breakfast. We'll be speaking to Andrew King, uh, Senior Lecturer at Melbourne University in Climate Science. We'll be also revisiting our conversation, uh, Grace, you had regarding uh, the Chilean coup. Yeah, so I basically spoke to Pilar Aguilera, who is our 3CR chairperson and a long-time Chilean activist. And we basically talked about commemorating the 50 years since the coup in Chile in 1973 and what this anniversary means to the Chilean community. And we also will be uh, listening from a expert regarding Arthur Balthus. Uh, he, he spoke to Joe Toscano on Radical Australia regarding Pentridge Prison and other jails in armed robbery. But now we're going to go to a few announcements and we'll come back with our first segment. Gas is a toxic fossil fuel. Yet gas exploration by Sonic Explosion is planned for the Otway Basin. Seismic blasting kills plankton and deafens whales, disrupting their migration. This blasting is opposed by coastal communities from Geelong to Apollo Bay and Warrnambool, who strive to protect the ocean ecosystems. Bring Whale Song into Nam City, Friday the 15th of September at Queen's Bridge near Flinders Street at 4.30pm and onto the State Library for 5.30pm. Rally for Whale Song Not Gas is hosted by Extinction Rebellion, a 3CR supporter. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are. At home, work, driving. On public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. 
We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We're going to be heading into a conversation by Adney McLaughlin, where she discusses on the teachers' fears of the normalization of nuclear and militarization in schools through STEM competitions financed by weapons companies supported by the Ministry of De- uh, Defense. She spoke with Sani Deswat, who is the Friends of Earth Anti-Nuclear Collective Coordinator. So let's take a listen. The issue of uh, normalising nuclear weapons and nuclear power in our schools has become a hot topic, hasn't it, with uh, the issue being brought to the attention of teachers and their unions quite recently. Can you talk to my listeners about what's been going on? Yes, so this um, normalisation of militarisation and... Um, nuclear challenges in under the guise of STEM projects, so science, technology, um, engineering, and maths. Um, has so it has been going on for a while, but it has increased um, recently. And at the moment, there's a nuclear-propelled submarine challenge that is marketed towards sev- year seven to twelve, and so it's basically getting kids um, into the pipeline um, and asking them to design a nuclear propelled submarine, which are basically um, killing machines, weapons of war. Um, and and this this is part of, of the bigger picture where, where kids as young as, as primary school are asked, are kind of groomed to, to partake in, in the military. So... Friends of the Earth was approached by teachers who were raising concerns specifically about the nuclear propulsion submarine submarine challenge. Um, And uh, Friends of the Earth has put out uh, a media release and teachers have been taking this to their union. And I've, as far as I know, um, several motions have been passed in different union branches in Victoria. And I heard that last night the AEU federal executive um, has has made um, passed a motion condemning the program. Well, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because on t- a, set, a whole lot of levels, because the education department actually has guidelines to say who it is they can take uh, sponsorships from, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And and what some of those things that they can't take sponsorship from are tobacco companies and weapon companies and. Um, Basically, the STEM Hub, which is one of the um, entities that is working together with um, the Department of Defense to to promote this propulsion challenge, is is BAE Systems, which is a um, a weapons manufacturer. It's not just a weapons manufacturer. It's actually is being taken to uh, an international human rights court over issues to do with armaments in Yemen. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're taking to the to the UN over human rights issues. Yeah, and and potentially they they are involved in um, building the sub 
the nuclear submarines if they are ever to be built in Australia. So what you're saying is that they've got pecuniary interests in um, this particular promotional activity. Absolutely, yeah. And in this case, the Victorian Education Department is is in breach of its own policy um, by promoting these actively on their website, we believe. Well, it's in Victoria, but it's also South Australia, and you'll probably find it's in other parts of the country as well. Um, this yeah. use of um, financial support from large weapons companies in our schools. Yeah, yeah. I just know that Victoria's got a policy about it. I think Teachers for Peace has also worked in New South Wales with the department to have policies around it, but I don't know if, if any of the other states and territories have those. So they it may be some. Yeah, so they sort of sneak, sneaked into the door. Uh, one of the things I was wondering about is it gives the impression that STEM, which is something that everybody's been pushing like crazy, has only uh, relevance when it comes to fighting machines. Which is unfortunate, no, because we are going to need for the transition to a greener and more livable society, we're going to need the brightest minds um, on on engineering and science and technology to help us make that change to to a, a more sustainable and regenerative society. Um, and and one of our concerns is that this is actually taken away from the change that we need to see and and drawn towards um, military and war efforts, which are destructive. We also feel that it really fails to acknowledge from a nuclear perspective the the devastating history around nuclear that Australia has, starting from the British atomic bomb tests um, 70 years ago, all the way up to uranium mining and um, trying to impose nuclear waste dumps on Aboriginal land, which all these activities have and continue to affect First Nations people disproportionately. So why do you think that the Education Department has been so gung-ho in this regard? Because they're actually publicising it on their website, aren't they? Yes, they are very actively um, um, promoting it. Um, I guess like the the whole government is is really um, pro. Like now that the AUKUS deal has been signed, is really um, preparing for war and and being quite straightforward about that. And I think that probably the education departments like are working together with defense departments are are like on on this same path. Unfortunately. So when the teachers have come to you about this, because you're part of the anti-nuclear collective at Friends of the Earth, um, this is about um, grassroots action against this tide, isn't it? Yes. So teachers have come to us with concern that this is happening in their classrooms and that it's so explicit and, and even BOE Systems is, is saying they are they want to create an extraordinary workforce and they're talking, ADF Careers is talking about like um, the pipeline of of recruits that they need. And um, so, so there's been some real concerns from teachers that this will be taught in their classrooms and that the military agenda in the, is, is perpetuated in their classrooms to children, which is irresponsible and unethical because it's children under 18. They they do not necessarily, it's it's built around positive brand association and they cannot make those decisions 
um, as adults can. Um, so they're being groomed from a very young age on. So the the teachers have been taking this up and they have been taking it to their unions. It's not just kids in 7 to 12. It's actually earlier than this. There's a... Yep. Yeah. What, tell us about the primary school targeting. So the program that we know at the moment, so there's, there's a few challenges. Um, so there's a, a Lego challenge um, that is that is ongoing. I think it's a yearly thing where kids um, are are kind of invited to take part of this Lego challenge, which is also um, run by by weapons companies and where weapon companies come and, and promote what they do as something exciting and innovative. But at the moment, there's a program called Beacon that's targeted as year uh, year four to six students. And it's it's funded by the AA systems. And it's also under the, the guide. It's a little bit more, um, less explicit, focused towards AUKUS, but it's focused at lower socioeconomic um, areas and schools, which makes it really hard for schools also to say no to them because that, that those come as well-resourced programs, but it is in, uh, quite insidious in the way it is targeting young children to have that positive brand association with military and weapons companies. The um, sophistication of this uh, marketing approach is quite disturbing, isn't it? It is very disturbing, yeah, and the intentionality about it. Uh, is this something that's happening in other countries as well, or is it purely related to AUKUS? I think it is happening in other countries as well. Um, we had a meeting, uh, like a coordination meeting with some of the teachers, and um, one of the teachers was pointing out that the, the in Britain, teachers have been working on this for a long time, um, that this, this has been happening in their schools as well. So I'm, I'm guessing it this happens in more than um, beyond Australia. So there's been a number of... Uh motions put forward through unions um so we this is a watching brief you're saying what's the next step um so friends of the earth has a few um calls for action where it is uh, for teachers to take this to their unions and to their schools and talk about this because a lot of teachers are either not aware of, about this happening in their schools or don't know how to argument it um and we're also asking parents to take this to their school boards and express their concerns about it. We also have uh, an email um, petition to the ministers of education to, to call attention to this and that letting people know that we don't agree with this military grooming in our schools. And I think that Teachers for Peace, who's been quite active on this, has, is, is taking this a bit further with teachers that were interested in the meeting yesterday um, to, to rally a bit more attention around this issue. You know, it'd be quite interesting if a union like the AMWU um, or the CFMEU decided that they were going to put forward some funding for a project in schools around uh, sustainable building projects or uh, um, offshore wind um mechanisms, you know, that sort of thing. It'd be Absolutely. interesting if they did a positive uh, process like that and if there would be a negative reaction around that in amongst the mainstream media. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that 
one of the issues is that there is a lack of of counters or alternatives to these programs and that at the moment so-called innovative and exciting um, STEM projects are are being very well resourced and funded by weapons companies and defense, but it has there's there's not many alternatives for the lower socioeconomic schools. So yeah. that would be great if if we can get um, unions or the government to to invest some some money in creating the workforce that we really need for a, a healthy future. And that was Annie McLaughlin. From, from Solidarity Breakfast, speaking to Sani Swat, who uh, is the Friends of Earth Anti-Nuclear Collective Coordinator, discussing teachers' fears of the normalization of nuclear and militarization in schools through STEM competitions financed by weapons companies supported by the Ministry of Defense. You can catch Solidarity Breakfast every Saturday from 7.30 to 9 a.m. You're listening to 3CR 855 a.m. Someone I ain't never seen before to say he's a captain of men, but they believe in our love. From the land of the white skin, he's self-righteous, a murder without license. With the spear, I'm the nicest, thinking that I might just wait till night hits. Then I move in silence, when the moon at a tide and my soul is defined. I'm consumed by desire to kill, any white devil wanna test my will, then he finna get burnt by the fire I feel. Look him in the eye and hold his spirit still, he's hoping I'm catching but I know I will. Stand on the shoreline, coming, coming, mother wanna cross mine, wanna take it from me. Fire in my eye, no, we ain't running, wanna mother, let's ride. Stand on the shoreline, coming, coming, mother wanna cross mine, wanna take it from me. Fire in my eye, no, we ain't running, wanna mother, let's ride. Say that it came in peace, but our blood still stains the beach. Roll the dice, we gon' play for keeps. The sacred place ain't a place to preach. No, no, no. No white faith and a black belief. No, no, no. Better pray that our spears don't reach. He's cold, white, hot, I'ma make it bleed. Leading to the first fleet. Sicker than disease that he bring from overseas. No matter where you flee, I will always be. In the darkest of night, your descendant will see me. Standing on the shoreline, come in, come in. Mother wanna cross mine, wanna take it from me. Fire in my eye, we ain't running. Wanna mother, let's ride. Bagan, bagan, 
Was the First Nations music group Burgerettes. Well, last week the UN's weather agency said August was the hottest ever recorded, third month in a row to the set record. It seems climate change is, ever, is becoming ever ever present. And discuss this issue is climate science lecturer at University of Melbourne, Professor Andrew King. Andrew, good morning. Uh, good morning, Patrick. Um, it was only a few weeks ago I was speaking to you and the nor- Northern Hemisphere was under a dome of heat. Um, <laughs> in that time, Andrew, we've uh, seen the last week Greece and Libya has had a torrential downpour, which has delivered years' worth of rain in about 18 hours. Um, what do you make of this? And firstly, and also, how can humans live in a world where we go from one extreme to the next? Yeah, it's definitely alarming, isn't it? Uh, We're seeing really extreme events coming back to back. And, um, I mean, this has always been the case, but these events are particularly extreme. And um, especially the Libyan event is is really, um, uh, you know, very sad to see. Mm. Yeah, it's it's very scary uh, given what's happened in Libya, especially, um, and we know the the ongoing issues they're facing with the conflict that's still going on there as well. So there's there's multiple facets in play. Uh, also, uh, Morocco is out of our mind as well, given the earthquake that's impacted that uh, that part of the world as well um, over the weekend. It's quite concerning to see that part of the world be impacted by so much. Um, Damage and so much of weather systems that uh, that have been unfortunately caused by uh, man-made uh, climate change, Andrew. So yeah, it does appear that uh, um, our influence on the climate has probably worsened these extreme events to some extent. So we'd still have extreme rain events without human-caused climate change, but we do know that um, our effects on the climate means that the atmosphere can hold a bit more moisture and that when we have these extreme weather events, or these extreme rainfall events, they're a bit more intense than they would be otherwise. Mm, but yeah. as you were, uh, just to add, as you were highlighting, um, a lot of the impacts of extreme weather events aren't just to do with um, like w- what happens in terms of the weather, it's also to do with um, the the vulnerability and exposure of people um, to the to the event and the response to the event as well. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, that, you know, that's why we're seeing really bad impacts at the moment. It's, we've also got lots of vulnerable people in the way of these um, extreme events going on at the moment in North Africa. 
Yeah, definitely. It's it's an interesting phase. Do you think that the and it's interesting you point to something that I was going to bring up. You did some research uh, recently with environmental science um, scientists Callum Douglas, Luke Harrington, a climate scientist and a senior lecturer at the University of Waitakere in New Zealand. Ed Hawkins, uh, professor of climate science at the University of Reading, and your fellow colleague in uh, Melbourne University, uh, Professor Alex uh, Borowak. Um, you published a, a report titled Climate Change Emergence Over People's Lifetimes. Um, in that research, you, you, you said that um, in only middle-income 207 countries where most people experience clearer emergence of warming than the global average, uh, do you see that the as the years go on, Andrew, do you, do you think that we'll see more uh, people of lower and middle incomes seeing um, the impacts of climate change affect them more than the, the higher income? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, we know that it tends to be lower to, to mid-latitude regions of the world where we see the clearest climate change effects. And it's lower latitude areas, which also tend to be the lowest income areas. So places nearer the equator have, uh, on average, um, uh, higher representation of people um, on on lower incomes. And that's where we see the the clearest climate change effects. Um, The the thing with that paper was it was also to do with um, demographics. So... Poorer areas of the world tend to be younger as well. So over people's lifetimes um, to date, uh, they they haven't experienced as much climate change as much older people in um, wealthier parts of the world. But that will, um, as population ages in lower income regions, we're going to see people experiencing much more climate change over their lifespans. Yeah, definitely, and that's a given example. Uh, in fun- unfortunately, it's happening in the front of the lives of people in Bangladesh, for example. Uh, the Maldives is another example in that in that space of uh, you know the rising sea levels have caused um, major flooding and uh, cyclones that unfortunately those governments can't um, protect. If you know what I mean, Andrew, it's not like uh, I think there's something that we <laughs> forget about when it comes to Australia is. When the Black Summer fires came along, we had a well, one a great fire authority across Australia that were did their best efforts to stop uh, those fires uh, ravaging homes, and and unfortunately people lost their lives. But it wasn't as bad as what you see in other countries, and I think that's something that's really alarming as well. Is that the nations that are, uh, as you said, lower income um, and are, are much poorer than a wealthier nation can't adapt to the ongoing uh, increase of temperatures and climate and, and, and weather. Yeah, that's right. It's definitely, it's harder. You, it, it, it's easier for wealthy countries to, to adapt. I mean, there are some things that are not really possible to adapt to, um, including um, sea level rise. It's, you know, expensive to, to try and keep that at bay. And, you know, there's even in, in wealthier regions, we'll have to have managed retreats um, to, to cope with sea level rise. Yeah. I did see recently as well, you've written an article uh, with Andrew Dowdy, Principal Research Scientist at the University of Melbourne, another colleague of you, and saying faster disaster, the title's Faster Disaster, Climate Change Fuels Flash Droughts and Intense Downpours and Storms. Um, give me an idea into that article and 
What are you hoping to? Are you hoping to just keep the conversation rolling with this um, issue? Yeah, it, it's um, so. This article is just highlighting the fact that we're seeing lots of extreme events at the moment, and we're seeing kind of rapid changes um, or rapidly intensifying extreme events as well. Um, so we've seen recently, for example, hurricanes, which have really um, gone from you know, moderately bad systems to really intense systems very, very quickly. And we've seen um, these intense downpours as well in, in Greece and other parts of the world, as you mentioned. And just highlighting the fact that climate change is kind of speeding up um, the development of some extreme weather events. Yeah, it's a it's a scary proposition ahead, Andrew. Um, it's it's not a nice one. I want to be a part of in all, in all seriousness. Um, and also, they're believing that we're heading towards an El Nino uh, weather event. Um, it's slowly the Bureau of Meteorology is slowly coming to to that fruition. Do, uh, we've had this discussion in our last chat, Andrew, regarding the situation in in terms of what we could see from that. Do, do you see, are you also concerned, Andrew, that the level of funding that's put towards your um, level of uh, science is not as much as what other uh, fields are? Um, well, you know, there's a value in all areas of science. But I would say, I mean, I find it quite surprising. Um, in climate science, we, you know, we do get some funding from the Australian government. And other climate scientists in other parts of the world have access to um, their own kind of funding. But it is surprising how few people there are kind of working in climate science, given, you know, it's the, really the most critical, um, it, it's about the most critical issue that humanity faces. <laughs> so it's, it has always surprised me that actually a lot of, a lot of things hinge on just a few people working in the area, and I guess that's a bit surprising and alarming. Yeah, that's it's an interesting space you just brought up there, Andrew. In terms of you're saying that it's it seems to me like it's not as uh, a popular space to get into. Do do you feel that um, the best way to step forward and uh, is probably keeping that discussion starting at the sc at the schools level and the grassroots level in terms of those discussions. And I don't mean, I don't mean the the activism side. I see more of the discussions around the science side of I think of things. I think that's the best way of probably putting the right step forward. Do you, do you agree on that way of thinking, Andrew, or do you think there should be more of the activism side to 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 making it clear to the public that this is actually a big issue and we should be um, getting on with um, you know do, uh, getting on with actually. Uh, making it more cleaner and a, a greener place to live? Um, I think it's both, really. We need mm. um, more activism, um, but obviously based on, on science, um, which it is, really. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a completely valid uh, thing for many, you know, many young people are really concerned about climate change, and that's um, entirely justifiable given the, the scale of the problem that we face. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that's fine, obviously. But, um, yeah, so more activism and more science is, is I think, probably the best approach. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I like your I like your theory. I just I also just want to touch as well. Do you, do you think that there could be a better way in terms of the activism? Like, there's been a lot of controversial movements. I, I know the can't stop can't stop all campaign put a bit of a campaign going on where they interrupted a lot of sporting events and and the likes. I'm a bit of a sports lover, Andrew, um, but I do I do see the the relevance in actually putting that message through. Uh, to the public, and uh, I, I know I know people who are I know people who, who people can be alarmed by it and go, well, why are they protesting at a sports event? I, I think I think those discussions are valid though, because in all seriousness, like cricket, for example, well, if they can't grow a cricket pitch at Lords in twenty years' time, that be that will make headlines before anything else, Andrew. If if you get my uh, get my drift, yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, this is always <laughs> a tricky thing. How do you gain attention for your cause? Um, but, you, you know, I, I think it is valid to, to interrupt these events, to be honest. I think mm. given the crisis that we face um, in terms of climate change, I, I can completely see why people are uh, willing to disrupt these major events. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a sports fan myself. I... It's and I understand why people would be frustrated by this, but just climate change is so much of a bigger issue, and people just need to understand that this is such a big issue, and we're not really tackling the problem. Mm. So, mm. Uh, not even close. So, I completely get why people, um, why why activists are, are disrupting these big events. Yeah, do you see the next few months being in Australia, for example, Andrew? Do you do you see the few month, next few months as being a, a situation where we could see an exacerbation of those uh, events that we saw in twenty sixteen? The coral, coral bleaching was one um, major drought um, uh, drought that occurred um, in the middle of the western New South Wales and also the Queensland uh, Southern Tablelands. Do you, do you see that occurring uh, in a regular basis in the coming months? Um, so it's it's kind of hard to predict exactly what extreme events we'll see in mm. Australia, but we would see like a heightened risk of droughts, of, of uh, what we call flash droughts, so this really rapid drying out of the surface. We're already seeing that to some extent in parts of um, eastern New South Wales and Victoria. We may well see more of that over the coming months. And in terms of coral bleaching, we typically see that around late summer, early autumn mm. in, in the Southern Hemisphere. And there would be a heightened chance of that um, with a, a likely El Nino event. But again, we can't say for certain. But uh, yeah, it's becoming more and more likely as climate change continues. And uh, this El Nino event might boost the likelihood as well. Mm, yeah. Are you also um, interested by the fact that the last week of weather in Melbourne, for example, has been a lot warmer for the start of spring? Like, uh, in all seriousness, even I don't see temperatures of 27 degrees at the first week of September. I'm like, I, do, I am someone who likes the warm weather, but um, not this early, if you get my uh, drift, Andrew. Yeah, it's, um, it's odd, isn't it? Um, yeah, even I mean, yesterday was pretty warm, and it, uh, the forecast... Um, I, I saw um, someone from the Bureau tweeted uh, that this looks like a lovely forecast for December. But, of course, it's not December. It's, it's only September. It's um, really remarkably warm for this time of year. And uh, we are expecting to have a very warm, dry spring. And this is 
Um, I think many people at this time of year think this sounds lovely, this weather. But, um, yeah, warm, dry weather in summer is not going to be as lovely, unfortunately. It does mean temperatures, rather than in the mid to high 20s, were, you know, maybe more likely temperatures in the high 30s mm. and, and over 40. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, it's it's almost like uh, someone eating too much chocolate and uh, getting a sick stomach is the best way I can um, picture it, uh, Andrew. Yeah, kind of, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thanks very much, Andrew. I really appreciate your time uh, this morning. Uh, we'll continue this chat throughout the uh, coming weeks um, and months ahead because this is going to be an ongoing issue and uh, we'll keep the ball rolling um, in the in the coming weeks and months ahead. Sure. Thanks for having me on, Patrick. That's okay. That was climate scientist and climate lecture, climate science senior lecturer at Mel- University of Melbourne, Professor Andrew King, on the line, uh, discussing all things climate change and weather across the world. mother she is talking to us can you hear her it is by no coincidence the global indigenous sacrifice for the causes and are feeling the impacts first and worst cultures who understand time differently to the western mind see as far back as we see forward we honor our ancestors like we honor our great great grandchildren time is no nine to five time is a gift presence gives us the ability to receive and inside time hides unconditional love and ultimate forgiveness we go She is talking to us. Can you hear her? She is crying, raging storms and floods strong enough to easily rip this city apart. Her guilt festers elsewhere, grinding teeth, jaw clenched, watching in disbelief, her eyes grow dry. She couldn't fill the barker. Even if she cried a river of tears because cotton, dairy and rice. We go forward, she goes round and round. We go forward, she goes round and round. Our mother. She is talking to us. Can you hear her? (laughs) 
indigenous uprising on the front lines old white men quiver squeaking childish threats then silence deep down they know we are right they know they went too far but trying to hold on to what's left of their power maybe it's childhood trauma hate or spite but they continue to light our mother on fire they pour poison down her throat create gmos packed in pretty plastic wrap pop it in a box sell it nice and cheap to us mob in the shops our mother she says to me the balance is off this will challenge you all to your core it is time to abolish capitalism greed white supremacy and war because i won't take this With L-O-R-E, I'm calling on the global indigenous. Lead the revolution with qualities of love, compassion, empathy, and unwavering resilience. We go forward, she goes round, round. We go mother she's talking to us can you hear her cultural change will solve a climate change and though many of you will migrate and die my skin my veins my limbs will be all right. Then when I'm well again, I'll invite you back to your favorite places. But for now, rest your head and close your eyes. We go a very important message kind of a song by uh, by Brent Watkins called Seed Alara. We revisit a conversation with Pilar Aguilera who is our 3CR chairperson and longtime Chilean activist commemorating 50 years since the coup in Chile in 1973 and what this anniversary means to the Chilean community. Let's take a listen. Good morning Pilar. Morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Awesome. So, Pilar, before we get into talking about the event happening tonight, can we just first get you to share about uh, what happened during the, the day of the coup in 1973? Yes, well, uh, September 11 uh, has always been a day of mourning since that year for our community. On that day, um, it was uh, in the morning, the democratically elected president, Salvador Allende, was overthrown uh, in a US-backed military coup. Mm. So um, that day, uh, 
the Chileans woke up to uh, the bombing of the presidential palace called the Moneda Palace in Santiago. Mm. Um, And for anyone who knows Santiago, the Moneda Palace is quite a low building, so these Hawker Hunter jets um, had to fly really low to, to bomb this. And um, imagine the noise, the smoke, um, the fear. So um, that sort of started a 17-year dictatorship in Chile, which mm-hmm. left many, many consequences. Many dead, many disappeared, exiled refugees. Um, it was an incredibly brutal time in the history of Chile. Um and, yeah, that this is what we're uh, commemorating. It has to be said that uh, Salvador Allende and his government, the Popular Unity Government, were democratically elected and they were ousted by a US-backed coup. Um, so quite significant to remember these things. Uh, really important never to forget this history that still impacts us to this day. Mm, I see. And so it's it's been 50 years since the Chile 1973. What what does this anniversary mean to you as a Chilean activist and to your community? How has it affected the Ch- your community? Well, um, it is a day, as I said, of significant mourning because um, aside from the overthrow of the government, um, 11th of September 1973 began... Uh, a brutal era of repression in Chile, persecution for political beliefs, for any anyone who thought different to the military regime, and it's something that's repeated around the world. Um, you know, dissenters, um, anyone showing resistance was um, persecuted, uh, imprisoned, killed, tortured, or disappeared. And this notion of the disappeared. It's not that someone simply vanished into thin air. It's that uh, somebody was taken, um, generally tortured, generally um, killed, but the remains and the whereabouts of those people were never divulged by the state apparatus. And so to this day, 50 years later, um, there are still families that are looking for their loved ones. Um, Interestingly, the Chilean government recently, in the last few weeks, announced that the state will now, um, 50 years on, take on the responsibility of looking for the remains of those people. Um, But it's, it's a significant impact for us because, as a community, we are fractured, we're traumatised, there's a lot of healing to be done, um, but there's also, if we look to the future, uh, a struggle still to come because we don't want these things to happen again, yet they have continued to happen in Chile under so-called democracy. Um, so, yes, mm. it's it's a complex thing. It's very painful yep. uh, today. So, yes, um, that's, that's always been the case for our community since that time. Mm, definitely. And there were many... Chile people who arrived, Chileans who have arrived in Australia as refugees and exiles in the 1970s and 1980s. So, how how has the activism been here in Australia for your pe- for your community, and how has Australia helped in helping your community? Oh, massively! Um, since uh, as soon as um, I heard someone say recently that 
resistance started on the 11th of September 1973, and that that form of resistance took many, many, many forms, um, both in Chile and outside Chile, because when people left the country, what we did was denounce what was happening in the country. Now, think of a time where there was no internet, there was no Instagram, there was no Mm. uh, smartphones. So information had to get out word of mouth, especially in a country where there was no uh, freedom of speech, there was no freedom of press, um, there wasn't those proper channels uh, to bring out the information. So um, generally we had to rely on things like 3CR, a famous example, 3CR set up in 1976, Mm. was an amazing way to keep the community informed, not just the Chilean community, but at the time there were also dictatorships in Argentina and Uruguay and um, that Latin American cohort coming in all had programs on 3CR and for the Chileans it was a Friday night where it was a way to keep informed about exactly what was going on. But in terms of the solidarity movement in Australia, it was a huge solidarity movement um, headed by unions, uh, activists, um, all things we want to commemorate um, at tonight's event, which I'll talk to you a little bit later on about. But yes, um, huge solidarity movement, huge activism, all denouncing the dictatorship. And, and I like to say that international solidarity around Chile was massive and it did help to bring down the dictatorship eventually in, in the late 80s, in 89, 90. Mm, I see. This Thursday on this very station, yep. from 6pm to midnight, we will have uh, six hours of special casting around Chile. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of uh, the uh, events and speakers of Monday, of tonight, will be um, aired on Thursday as well. I see. That's really awesome, Pilar. Uh, so we are going to have to wrap up really soon, so we just I just want to get one last thing from you. So... Um, in case if our listeners can't, not everyone will be able to attend these events happening tonight and listen or listen to the special broadcast. What do you want our listeners to remember in regards to this anniversary and how do you think we can further get involved and try to help to understand? I think it's important to keep um, historical memory alive <laughs> and it's also important to note that... Um, the Chilean people are still fighting for democracy and better living conditions, Uh, that the struggle is not just uh, rooted in the past, but it continues to this day. And events like these are radical events with real voices and so important to keep history alive um, and to educate the younger generations. So, yes, get along if you can or have a listen on 3CR or live stream. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Bella. It has been lovely having you. Thank you, Grace. Thank you. And yes, tune in on Thursday. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bella. And that was Pilar Aguilera, our true CR chairperson and longtime Chilean activist, discussing the 50th anniversary since the coup in Chile in 1973. This whole week is to commemorate the Chilean community, 50 years of solidarity, resistance, and struggle. Tomorrow, Tricia is having is holding a special six-hour broadcast from 6 to 12 a.m. 6 p.m. to 12 a.m. with interviews from Chile, testimonies in English, Spanish, Spanglish, and much more. So be sure be sure to tune in then. On Saturday, 
there will be a cultural open stage, which is like a candlelight event with collective healing discussions, music and poetry. It will be held at Catalyst Social Centre, 146 Sydney Road at Coburg. So yeah, but if you want to attend, you could go there and yeah, we'll put more information on the show notes as well. Um, yes, thank you, Grace, for that. Uh, so now we're going to listen to a conversation for from City Limits with Kevin Healy, who is the head of 3, 3CR's Urban Planning and Social Justice Program. And this month they discussed... Um, they discussed buses, accessibility, and the impact of transport policy. Let's take a listen. Again, it seems to be that the the benefits of doing things that the motorist gets benefit from, you know, is much greater politically than uh, doing doing something sensible with with the bus services. Yep. You know, can I repeat again, as usual, the frequency of buses on suburban routes and particularly out of suburban routes in Melbourne is just so pathetic as to make the buses almost unusable. Um, a Christian no doubt would would say yes, completely unusable because he never knows when a bus comes along whether he's going to be able to get on or not yeah. and then he's left waiting for another half yeah. hour. And of course John Stone and, um, and Friends of the Earth did that study before the state election which uh, yeah. which came up with that solution that yeah. you know, it would yeah. be a lot better. Well it's been confirmed, it's been confirmed by you yeah. know very very um, establishment um, people from you know Melbourne Uni and uh, Sydney Uni so mm. it seems like a knock you know knockdown is that what you say a lockdown knockdown mazir is that something to do with it's called a laydown mazir oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> thought you'd know uh, <laughs> uh, you know it's it's so obvious it's so blindingly mm. obvious and it's so much cheaper but. It you know there just seems to be this complete resistance to acknowledge that the bus services are both um, pathetic in their coverage and pathetic in their frequency, mm. and that they need to you know they can feed people too the, the rail system we already have. <sighs> well, I got to the Parliament Station with my bike a couple of weeks ago yeah. to go home, and I had the bike yeah. so I couldn't get the tram um, if if anything went wrong. Uh, and I had a, it was a 50-minute gap between trains on the upfield line. It said 38 minutes, next upfield train. It's supposed yeah. to be every 20 anyway. Yeah. But then by the time it did come and go, I, I went, I took the next train to Flinders Street and waited there. Yeah. But uh, it was a 50-minute gap between trains on the upfield line that day, and I couldn't, I couldn't take the alternative tram because I had a bike with me. Yeah. And what... And what was going on? I can think no of idea. They didn't tell you. No, 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 no information no, just, about just, that's just, it. just blandly. Um, well, you know, stuff you. You know. Yeah, sit that's on right. Seat, <clears throat> sit on the seat and read the paper. God help you. Yeah, yeah. but segueing from your western suburbs thing last month, yeah. we mentioned the fact that they seem to get a far lesser service than the eastern suburbs and the the, yes. the, 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 the tree-lined areas of the east, um, which we're not against. Of course, we think we no. all should get that sort of service, but. Um, it's worse this month because the government's announced now it's it's not going to proceed with the air, the airport link, mm. um, and also the Geelong fast rail project that was promised. <laughs> uh, they've all been delayed, but the government is then saying that it now has to also delay the Western Rail plan because it 
it can't do that before the Geelong Rail Link. Now, I don't know why, because the Western Rail Link is, rail plan is basically electrifying the line to Melton and the Tarnit yeah. Wyndham Vale area, yeah. so they become part of the suburban service. But why? Yeah. But it's saying it can't proceed with that until the Geelong Fast Rail, they've now adjourned yeah. anyway, goes yeah. ahead. And they're yeah. also saying, parallel to that, we're going to uh, delay the... We're long delayed. It's been delayed forever, hasn't it? The the railing to the airport. Well, it seems like it's it's quite convenient, really, because you know you can say, well, we can't knock this this duck down before we knock that one down, so we can't do anything at all. And that seems to you know that's quite a, quite a convenient argument for them, really. So they just shrug their shoulders and walk away. But of course, in the meantime, they could make some sort of an improvement to the bus system, feeding feeding people in a more convenient and faster and more frequent way to the existing rail system. Couldn't that? Is that completely beyond them? Uh, well, I probably don't think the so. That probably is yes, actually, John, but don't worry. Well, you've got you, know, it, you know, that sort of bus improvement, improvement that costs nothing compared with these multi-billion rail, rail um, projects that they want to, they want to indulge in. It really is, you know. I guess I can see their point in a way about Tarnit and Wyndham Vale getting becoming part of the suburban system. In that, if you've got um, fast, you can't really well. You can run. You can run faster trains on the Geelong line. A lot of it's, a lot of it's just, it's just they they're, they're not prepared to try and run the system with the sort of precision that you, you you can run trains if you if you're somewhere in Europe like Switzerland or or um, possibly Germany but we can't apparently do that uh, and so they they're, they're sort of saying oh well, until we build some more tracks from Werribee towards the city via Newport for the fast fast trains from Geelong we can't do anything to improve anything you know so I think I think we could, that means nothing's going to happen until long after um, um, everybody in the current governments in in Spring Street are dead and buried. You know, it's um, yeah. and a lot of those improvements to the suburban line uh, were were linked into the 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 airport link as well. So mm-hmm. if that doesn't go ahead, there's other other projects that were sort of linked into it that that probably die as well. Do they? Well, you've already named them, really. You know that they, that, that, that they, they've they um, built. You know, it's only a few years ago they built two more tracks from the city out to um, Sunshine, two more rail tracks. So there are now four four tracks for trains from Footscray out to the out to Sunshine. But suddenly. Suddenly, they don't get any any benefit much from those, um, and then I think they're saying now they want to build two more tracks. That sort of seems to be seems to be what they're sort of saying in their muddled muddled way, um, and they don't seem to think they can put two different services on the same set of tracks, like country country V-line services and, and services to the airport. They don't seem to think they can run those on the same set of tracks. They can, but they, they don't seem to think they can. Um, oh, yeah. So that gets me back to thinking, it, 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 you know, the way to get to the airport much cheaper and much quicker is to use the Broadmeadows option, which, um, 
means you'd send a line seven kilometres west from north of Broadmeadows to the airport. Um, yeah, but that, of course, would partly depend on getting more use out of the upfield line, which we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Because some of the trains you'd be able to divert onto the upfield line, you know. But that would still, it seems to me, be a cheaper package than the um, incredibly expensive, what is it, $10 billion plus uh, of getting to the airport via Sunshine Albion then across across to the um, south, south south end of the airport. And they seem to love tunnels. It involved a tunnel as well. Yeah, again, lots so. of tunnels yeah. and, and lots yeah. of big viaducts and things like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah so it's... It's a mess, Kevin, I think. Well, a bloke called John Hirsch, who's with a group yeah. called the Rail Futures yeah. Institute, yeah. he said that the opposite of what they're saying, he said the airport yeah. delay presented the opportunity to bring forward the Melton electrification, which would also free up capacity for more V-line trains from Wyndham Vale and ease overcrowding on the Geelong trains. Yeah, well, he's right. Yeah, yeah. John, John Hirsch is usually right. Yeah, yeah. But he, he often, mm. often suggests some you know, very expensive. They often, Braille's futures, suggest very expensive um, projects of their own. But, yeah, he's right. Uh, that, that would help. And why not do those things while, you, while you're uh, waiting? I mean, you know, electrification of a line is not, you know, in this day and age, such a huge project to do if you're well organised and get the right, the right companies to do it. But all of that, of course, is... Um, <laughs> is expecting a lot of our people. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, we, which we do, of course, but we never get it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, that's right. Well, I mean, I, 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 I said long ago that I was suspicious of the, of the, of the line via Deer Park, you know, and then, then cutting south towards um, Geelong, you know, that's got the Tarnit and Wyndham Vale um, stations on it, but that didn't quite makes sense to me to be making the Geelong line trains run further around the houses. Uh, Townheat and Windervale could be served by buses that, 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 that took, took them over to the um, existing Werribee line. But, 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 you know, that never happened in a... Compre- well, it happens to a degree, but it doesn't happen well enough. And, of course, those stations being nearer, the obvious... The obvious thing for the locals is to go to those stations where, where suburban passengers they cram onto V-line trains. Mm. And of course, and another thing, yeah, <laughs> they do not seem to be able to run velocity train sets longer than six cars. Well, you know, I think it'd be quite obvious to extend them to nine car trains, and then you'd have a set, then you'd have a chance of dealing with the patronage that gets on at um, Tarnit and uh, Wyndham Vale. Oh dear. Yeah, well, I was talking to someone last week who who comes from Geelong regularly, yeah. and says by the time they get there um, yeah. to Tarnit and Wyndham yeah. Vale, often people can't even get on the thing because it's so mm. crowded coming yeah. from Geelong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, they, I think they do. They do run a few trains that start at uh, Wyndham Vale. I think don't come from Geelong, mm. but but you know, again, it's it's all a gesture, you know. It's, um, and one of the reasons, oh, no, don't go there, John, but one of the reasons why Geelong's got a 20 You're about minutes, to go there, aren't you? I am, yeah. It's got a train every 20 minutes, which is nice, uh, is that, of course, that they're, they're trying to service um, Tarnit and uh, Windham Vale as well. 
Yeah, it's it's a mess. It's, and they set that they set the mess up for themselves, you know, fifteen years ago by diverting the line behold, through there. Yeah, and lo and behold, yeah. they ended up with a mess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Geelong line should continue to go straight through Werribee and straight into the city, shouldn't it? Well, that's well, that's my view. Yeah, yeah. And of course, possibly go dive under the river and and go in through um, through um, um, Fishman's Bend, to, and you know. You know those sort of things, but uh, they they they, they um, don't seem to be able to plan for, plan for very long ahead, and, and they always seem to believe that nothing will encourage travel as much as it does. You know, all like their predictions they almost always underpredict what what traffic they'll generate by by improving lines and services. It's as if they don't want to. You know, generate more more patronage. It's all very, it's all very peculiar. But, and the airport railing that's been promised yeah. for um, yeah. I don't know since Methuselah, yeah. uh, it it keeps getting knocked. Like when Peter Batchelor was transport minister, mm. he did a study mm. then, yeah. and at the end he abandoned the whole thing. And the one yeah. thing he went ahead with all road projects, but abandoned the one rail yeah. project. And now yeah. we're seeing it again, where uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's the it's the victim when they decide to cut spending. Well, you know, a lot of a lot of people. Um, dare I say this, Kevin? I think it's probably right that the airport rail link is not the highest priority for public transport, and that things things could be improved again with buses. Radically over what they are at the moment. I mean, there's barely is it two public buses get to the airport? Is uh, that, yes, and it's it's circuitous, and it uh, you have yeah. to walk a long way at the other yeah. end. I think uh, yeah. people tell it's me I've never things. used it, but yeah. I mean, there's lots of lots of ways the buses could be improved at the airport. There could be there could be some express buses from points east and west. Priority like, lanes, for God's sake. Yeah. Well, I mean. What about an express bus every 15 minutes from, say, Sunshine Station, which would service people coming from Ballarat, Bendigo and Geelong going to the airport? Wouldn't that be a good idea? It would be, John, yes. I'll take it as rhetorical, but it's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and, um, you know, there are so many things that could be done in the meantime. Yeah. Of, you know, yeah. That that would would be improvement. And there's also, of course, that in long. If you're going to think long term, we would hope that long term air traffic air travel would be reduced dramatically. Of course, yeah, but the, right. although the airport, or the, because it's privatised airport, they're planning for more and more and more. Of course, of course, it's there's a there's a you know great glorious future for for air travel. I think we're now talking about electric planes. You know, now that'll be interesting. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Get a shock when they go down. Uh, <clears throat> okay, look, we've got to find up, John. We're out of time, unfortunately. But next yeah. month, I did want to raise bikes today because of interesting right. stuff about, you know, the, the massive bike, um, the way that public transport and bikes link in in, in Holland um, yep. in Netherlands, which is worth yep. talking about. But it uh, is. do well, it okay, next let's, month. Let's note it for next month. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, thanks for your time, though, John, and we'll, uh, we will Hi, talk next month. And that was John and Kevin discussing accessibility on public transport. You can catch John on City Limits on the first Wednesday of the month from 9.30am here on 3CR. And we'll just go... 
no, we'll, go, we'll go straight to the we'll go straight to our last segment for the show of the day already. So we're gonna be listening to an excerpt which was from a two-hour interview actually with Arthur Bokus. So Kelly Worth and Joe Toscano talked about his eight-year stint in the rabbit wall of Pentridge Prison and other goals for armed robbery when he was a young, confused man. Arthur has dedicated much of his life to helping prisoners transition from Gaul to into the community and serves as a mentor to many. So let's take a listen to Arthur's story, which is a tale of redemption. This is Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. Kelly Whitworth. Now. Now, Arthur, how do you spell your surname, just in case there's a book published about your life at some stage? Um, the surname is spelled B-O-L-K-A-S. You were down at the Supreme Court, I understand. What year was that? Uh, 1976. Oh, that was a good year. Oh, 77, actually. Good year for armed robberies. Yeah, so 77. And how many charges was thrown at you? Oh, it would have been 101 right. if they had their way. No, it was... Um, <sighs> Uh, three counts of armed robbery, mm. one attempted armed robbery, and mm. two counts of being in possession of police pistols. So, did you plead guilty or not guilty? Well, I pleaded guilty because guilty. they had so much evidence and mm. they threatened to mm. implicate a certain other person, and I said no, and they no. said, well, if you don't sign, we will. And well, I signed. You signed, right, because of that, that outlandish outfit you wore at the last <laughs> robbery. You know that. <laughs> Hey, the, the detective who charged me, as we were going up the lift to the armed robbery squad, he looked at me and he said, you are the best dressed armed robber I've ever met. How come you dress like that? And I said, oh, I don't know. I'm Greek. Watch, watching too many Untouchables movies or something. <laughs> Got the style, man. So what did the, was it Supreme Court judge, was Supreme it? Supreme Court. Well, just one? One, and then if you appeal, which yeah. I did, you get yeah. three. Three. Mm. <laughs> so what, what grounds did you appeal on? Well, it was too much. <laughs> <laughs> what do you reckon? Do you know what happened? No, no, not only that. I yeah. said, listen, uh, I, I, I had no intent to really harm anyone because mm. I used an imitation gun, blah, blah, mm. blah. And mm. the judge said, do you know that one of your victims had a pacemaker in his heart? Mm. You could have been in front of me for, for murder or at least manslaughter, young man. And yep. I sort of said, I'm sorry. <laughs> You know, so right. it didn't wash very well with him. Look, it was my first defence. Right. I, I wasn't a, no, but I wasn't a bad kid. I was a mixed up kid, and I made you a big mistake. Who did you steal lollies from? From but, Mr. Grotz. Oh, right. down, down yeah, yeah, you were a bad kid. You were born bad. So how did you how did you while away the eight years? Um, keeping busy, Joe. Uh, it, it started with. Um, Toy stuffing, making stuffed toys, and then from that I progressed to macrame, and then from there I progressed to leather work, which I was pretty good at, mm. and then uh, 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 copper work, mm. interspersed with study, right. periods of study. Uh, 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 what were you studying? Well, a guy that I met in there who was a lawyer um, said to me, listen, Arthur, you're in here for a long time. Um, Use the time, don't let the time use you. Yeah, and I thought yeah. it was a riddle, you know, what mm. does that mean? Mm. Um, and I came to appreciate what that meant. And, and so he said, why don't you finish your degree? And I said, oh, okay. So I applied. There was no distance education at Melbourne Uni, and I don't know if there is now. And all I had was textbooks. Mm -hmm. And so I passed the subjects I'd failed, and... I mean, I say to people who ask me, oh, didn't you get rehabilitated in prison? <laughs> and I say, are you serious? Haven't they called it the University of Crime? Well, yeah, yeah, that. But 
you know, I coined a phrase, um, it is an illogical expectation that a person can be rehabilitated mm. in a captive environment right. of institutionalised dependency. Yeah. So, when were you released? Released? Yeah. Um, I was released in 1983. 83. Um, on April the 16th. Now, it, know, was a, it was a rainy day. We've gone the punishment, redemption. Yes. Now, you've been very active in a lot of positive ways as far as society is concerned mm. and as far as some of, uh, I understand, your victims are concerned. Yes. I got a job um, unexpectedly heading up a new youth department for this Christian organisation. I don't know why I did, because I certainly didn't expect <laughs> to get, get anywhere. Mm. And they interviewed me and then they offered me the job. And I remembered thinking, do you know what you're doing? I got out of jail about five months ago, four months ago. Mm-hmm. Some newspaper wanted to interview me related to the church. Mm-hmm. So I went along, I thought, well, they want to interview me. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So they interviewed me, and the next minute, mate, I became a celebrity. And fed income for the next five years, I was booked up to travel here and travel there and share my story. Um, so I had to give it all up. And then I thought, what can I do? So I started driving cabs. I did that for three and a half years. And um, after that, at the age of 40, I gave that up and I went back to uni. And I remember the sub-dean of the law faculty said, do you still want to finish your degree? I said, no, it was a big mistake. I want to do criminology. It was a good fit. Because I'd been through the criminal justice system, so I did uh, ended up doing a postgraduate degree, a master's degree. I did a thesis. Solutions. Solutions. Yeah. Are you serious? No, well, I am serious. Okay. You've got a real experience. Yeah, I'm a criminologist. Yeah. Oh, I'm the, I'm an expert. Yeah. Well, one solution is stop building prisons. Yeah. I mean, I don't know who advises the, you know, the politicians. Mm. Um, oh, look, it's the media. Mainly the Murdoch-driven media. Was, they advise the politicians. I was going to... I mean, true, mate, it's true. You, you, you know your stuff. Like, you know, he's he's anticipated what I'm going to say. Face. No, no, he's pretty switched on, is, is oh, Joe well, thank you, thank Well you. done. Thank you, Because Alan. when yeah. I talk to kids, because I do a talk called yeah. The Prison System mm. uh, to Legal Studies Students, and it's yeah. quite popular, uh, and I love it. And that's the thing I say. I say, so at a time where over the last 20 years, across major crimes, um, offending is actually dropping. That's right. Right? But at the same time, imprisonment rates are increasing. How does that figure? And I explain this and this and this as reasons, and then I say, and the media, the media that pro- propagates fear. Mm. So, you know, let's, let's address those issues. Let's actually educate the public about the issues and who these people are rather than scapegoating, let's go to the suburbs where the problem actually begins. Because some years ago, Jesuit Social Services did some research. The postcode research. Did I, did I, how did you know that? <laughs> Look, did, did I mention it I, to you? No, I do a number of programs. It's interesting. He knows, <laughs> he knows a couple of things. There you go, you know. To your credit, well done. I, I wish more people knew mm. what you know. Because, you know, when I mentioned that, that, 60% of them come from, you know, 
what is it, 4% of postcodes. That's right. That one in four come from 2% of postcodes, and there are hundreds and hundreds of postcodes. And when I say to kids, where wouldn't you want to live in Victoria? And they know. They know. And I say, well, the research shows that little boys predominantly are going to drop out of school, drop into trouble, drop into drugs, drop into the youth justice system, and within five years they're going to be in the adult prison system, and it's going to cost the taxpayer every year that they're in the youth justice system over half a million dollars and 130-odd thousand a year when they become adults. What's that about? Mm. Um, How to fix it? I'm a little bit pessimistic because I think you Mm. need to go to the source of the problem and not just address the effect. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the source of the problem, if you go to those postcodes, try and help those families. Try and lift them out of, you know, whatever form of degradation or Mm. or, or, um, Mm. disadvantage they have. So so, so do you think income inequality is at the basis of a a lot of crime? People don't have options. Particularly for people coming out of prison Mm. and, and... even ones who have tried to to turn you know, a new chapter in life, and and I've I've worked with these people for years. That was my specialty, the transition from prison to the community. And um, three things we, as f- a famous priest, Father John Brosnan, once thirty years prison chaplain, Catholic prison chaplain at Pentridge. Good bloke. I met him a few times. And he famously said something that summed up all the research I've ever done. He said three things someone needs coming out who wants to kick on. Somewhere decent to live, at least as decent as prison. And a lot of them don't. They're better off in prison. Can you believe that? They're better off in prison. Look, I've seen a lot of dives and I can understand that. Okay. Uh, The second thing they need is a job they can handle. Not just any job. I've got a friend who's 53. He's never done a tax return in his life. Why? He's never had a job. You can't stick him in a nine to five in a factory six days a week Mm. when he could go out and score money at a phenomenal rate in, you know, a a couple of hours. So you've got to sort of graduate them into the work and hopefully work that they find a little bit interesting would be useful. And the third thing is a friend. And then John Brosnan qualified it and said, and the hardest one to provide of the three is the friend. And he was spot on. Because in my experience, if you want to reform, rehabilitate, whatever term you want to use, help to turn someone's life around who wants to be turned around, they need help. If they don't get it, it's impossible. In my experience, the programs I've been involved in that have really cut it where it counts, is programs where volunteers have visited prisoners, established relationships with them, and then when they've come out of prison into the community, they've lived in the same sort of geographic area, and they've spent time together doing normal things that human beings do, like going to the footy, uh, eating a pizza together, Mm, do you know? mm. And that, via this process of almost like osmosis, you learn, you observe, you watch, and then you ask questions. That's rehabilitation, if you want to call it that. Well, we had a, believe it or not, we had a program in 1972 when I was a medical student and we'd visit prisoners in Bogger Road Jail. Yeah, notorious Queensland. Notorious prison, yeah. And we'd visit them and then sometimes, once they were released, we'd, we'd organise picnics and things for their families. Yeah. And them. Yeah. So you're quite right. Everybody needs a friend. Yeah. I am Look, so- I'd like to thank all the people... <laughs> All the people, because what what you're doing has a huge 
personal cost. It's a huge personal cost, yeah, and I, the people I, around you are those who, you're right. not just your family, but your various relationships, yeah. they're the ones who've actually paid the ultimate price. That's probably the most astute observation you've made, Joe. <laughs> no, I mean it. A lot of people yeah. would, have, would be clueless to think that because yeah. they don't yeah. understand that's right. what, what we've been talking about. That's right. And you do, you do. And mm. I've, I have paid a, a big price, and my kids. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, and, and thank you for the opportunity. Well, I've really enjoyed much. myself. Thank you both. Thanks, You're Arthur. On. Bye. And that was Joe Toscano and Kelly Weworth speaking to Arthur Borkus about his eight-year stint in the Netherworld of Pentridge Prison and other goals for armed robbery when he was a young, confused man. You can catch Radical Australia every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m., so yeah, you can and if you want to listen to the whole interview, the whole two-hour interview, you can tune in. You can go to tcr.org.au and search for Radical Australia to hear that two-hour two interview. You're going to be handing to a song. This is called I'm a Believer by Neil Donald. In DigiTube, people, place, language. Connecting stories, culture and language across Australia. Contribute your content in digitube.com.au. Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming. Download and broadcast promotion. A 3CR supporter. I thought love was only true and fairy tale. Meant for someone else, but not for me. Love was out of Then I saw her face Now I'm a believer Not a trade That's my man I'm in love And I'm a believer I couldn't leave her if I tried Sunshine, I got rain Then I saw her face Now I'm a believer Not a trace A doubt my mind I'm in love And I'm a believer I couldn't leave her if I tried So her face Now I'm a believer Not a trace A doubt in my mind I'm in love And I'm a believer I couldn't leave her if I tried I saw her face 
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and that song was I'm, I'm a Believer by Neil Diamond. And that's all for the show. So yeah. you'll be able to catch up on the show on 3cr.org.au. Go to podcasts, go to W, go to Wednesday Breakfast, and you can check all the breakfasts from Wednesday Wednesday's crew uh, with myself, Sonera, Grace, and Claudia. Also, uh, coming up this Friday, 15th of September, uh, three songs for 3CR, community choir performances and food. Uh, it will kick off at 7.30pm at Mark Street Hall, uh, 1 Mark Street, Fitzroy North. Entry is $25 to $20, so uh, go along to that. It'll be good fun there. Yep, and I just want to add lastly that the Chile Can- Cultural Open Stage, which is like a candlelight event, will be happening this Saturday at 4 p.m. So, yeah, I'll be at Catalyst Social Centre at 146 Sydney Road at Coburg. So, yeah, we'll put up we'll put more information in the show notes. But, yeah, be sure to head there if you want to go. And, yeah, so that's all for our show today. You've been listening to Breakfast. And, yeah, stay tuned for next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.